Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We've got a special code for podcast listeners that gets you a discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on the app. Newscientist.com slash POD20 gets you a 20% discount. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential weekly fix of science. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm your other host, Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by a bumper crop of people, actually. We've got New Scientist reporter Alice Klein from Australia. And here in the UK, we've got Jacob Aaron, Adam Vaughan and Jason Murugesu. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Now, obviously, the biggest and the grimmest story in the world right now is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we're going to be examining that from two angles. We're going to look at what the effect of sanctions and the squeeze on Russian gas to the West could mean for climate targets. And with the invasion, we can expect an increase in cyber operations by Russia, so cyber attacks on Ukraine and on Western businesses, and even the threat of uh, all-out cyber war. And we're going to be discussing what that means. This week, we're also hearing from Christina Pagel of University College London about the lifting in England of the last of the legal coronavirus rules. That's including the requirement for people with COVID-19 to self-isolate. We'll be discussing how a billionaire in Australia is attempting to shut down coal mining by literally buying the coal industry in his country. And we'll be talking about a new investigation into the nature of pain. Plus, we have orangutans. Yay, all that to come. But yeah, let's start with Ukraine. Adam, you've been looking at what the invasion and the squeeze on Russian gas to the West could mean for climate targets. So I guess the first thing that's happened as a result of the aggression, even before the invasion, is that Germany halted the approval process for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Do you want to remind us what that is? Well, Germany gets most of its gas from Russia via pipelines through Belarus and through Ukraine. And Nord Stream 2, as the uh, name suggests, is a a second um, gas pipeline that has been, it's been built. It goes uh, under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. You know, it's basically a, a reflection of the fact that Germany's energy policy, that's one of the bedrocks of it, is a relationship with Russia and getting gas from Russia. We don't know precisely the figures for how much gas it gets because they haven't been publishing them for a few years. Quite often people talk about half of Germany's gas coming from Russia. The last figures I could see were like 40% in 2018. But yeah, clearly it is heavily dependent on Russian gas. That's obviously quite politically sensitive then if it's Russian gas and, and much of it is coming through Belarus and Ukraine. Very much so. And and, and Germany's new Chancellor Schultz has um, been, you know, sort of tiptoeing around this and has, you know, come under criticism in Germany for not doing anything and sort of, you know, stirred some controversy by saying, calling the pipeline a purely commercial project, you know, and trying to suggest that there was no connection with the geopolitics of Ukraine. He wishes, what, yeah. He wishes. Well, exactly. And I, I think it became, you know, I think, what was interesting, though, is even though, like, to everyone else, it seemed obvious that you could no longer sort of separate the two, it still came as a surprise to many people I spoke to 
that you know he did actually finally um stop the certification which is a sort of regulatory step for approving it it's important to say that you know some people talked about pulling the plug and suggested it had been cancelled let's be clear at the moment it's paused rather than cancelled so what kind of impact are we expecting that to have I, I guess both on energy prices but also on on the push for renewables too yeah so I was talking to lots of people in Germany about this and um gas prices went up on the day that the pipeline was paused however the people I spoke to said it's it's important to remember that the prices really are going up not so much because of the pipeline being paused per se but because of the general uncertainty and volatility that threat of a war well now we have a war brings so you know gas prices go up as a result of that and oil prices ditto it certainly doesn't mean Germany's going to run out of gas anytime soon they've got actually quite good gas stores over after the winter obviously we're going into milder weather now you know, it's worth remembering Nord Stream 1, the gas is still flowing, you know, from Russia. So nothing has changed there. But longer term, it can have some other impacts. Yeah. So what are those longer term impacts, do you think, for especially for renewables and for climate targets that we're all pinning our hopes on? The opinion seems to be sort of divided on this front. Some people I spoke to thought that the... Um, so what happened was Schultz, when he paused this, he also ordered um, from his economics and climate protection ministry, he ordered a, a review of how Germany gets its energy supplies. Now, some people thought I spoke to thought that that was just a just a mechanism, really, a sort of covering fig leaf for the pausing, you know, so it's a sort of kicking it down the road type, you know, just a mechanical thing. Um, but but actually, others I spoke to felt that this might actually lead to a much wider reevaluation, you know, n- not on a par with like Angela Merkel saying, you know, we're going to phase out nuclear post fiction, yeah. not like that, but nonetheless important. And I think it seems to be the thinking seems to be that it could have twofold effect. One is on diversifying where Germany gets its gas supplies from. So that might mean, for example, more stuff coming in on boats, liquid natural gas. So Germany will have to think about building more terminals at its ports to do that. The other, as you sort of alluded to, is, is more renewables, more energy efficiency in buildings things like green hydrogen which were previously talked about as a sort of long-term thing might suddenly become much more short-term and interestingly on the climate side it's not all good news so one real potential casualty here is is germany's coal phase out timeline now Mm. previously it was 2038 that well there was a plan and the new government under the coalition that they formed when they came out of an agreement they said we're going to aim for 2030 now that date still needs to get nailed down this year and they make a decision by august on that but what's interesting is obviously we've already seen with the high price of gas in the last few months, Germany burning more coal rather than gas because it just reacts to price, right? So with gas prices going even higher in the short term, the clear expectation is Germany's going to burn more coal, which is obviously bad news from a climate point of view. Okay, thanks, Adam. Now let's think about cyber war. I saw Putin earlier this week was saying Russia will expand the use of advanced digital technologies and elements of artificial intelligence which sounded a bit scary in a weird sci-fi way. And we know that Russia has been engaged heavily in cyber espionage and cyber attacks over the years. So what does the invasion mean now? Like, Are we going to have a cyber war? Jacob, you've edited a piece on this this week. Yes, so this is a piece by journalist Chris Stokel-Walker. And just as for the past few weeks... Countries have been warning their citizens to get out of Ukraine, you know, prepare for the invasion that we're now seeing. Western authorities have also been warning about cyber attacks. So both the the UK's National Cyber Security Centre and the US Department of Homeland Security have put out warnings to businesses and organisations saying that they need to up their cyber defences. So um, this has some impact already. People have been doing this. 
Yes, so actually, as we were putting the story together yesterday, um, we found it was a bit difficult to access information on the Ukrainian government's websites because it had been taken down by a cyber attack. <sighs> this was an attack that hit government banks and, and websites. Mostly when websites go down, it, it's a nuisance rather than you know a, a really serious thing, but it does point to cyber operations are going on. There's potentially other attacks going on behind the scenes. And we know that Russia has history on this. So the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency, has a number of units for launching cyber attacks. And these have been previously connected to everything from attacks on Ukraine in the past and to the hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails and all the fallout in the US 2016 presidential election. Could we expect cyber attacks on uh, like military infrastructure as well? So, you know, because so much uses kind of web-ready technology, could it knock out the means to fight back as well as websites? I mean, I think that's certainly going to be the goal of Russian cyber attacks. They're going to want to degrade the Ukraine's ability to defend itself more than, you know, just causing their citizens to, you know, not be able to access their online banking. (laughs) Yeah. But obviously, it's hard to know exactly what is web capable, how they will have access to military units and, and things like that. It's worth saying that one one sector that there are worries about is the energy sector. Um, you know, Ukraine's electricity grid is actually plugged into Russia. They've, Russia has form on on attacking power sector companies in the states. Even um, I mean, there are like lots of measures taken in that industry, like air gaps between you know stuff that's connected to the web and and physical infrastructure. But nonetheless, you can still cause problems for utilities, and that very is vulnerable. A, yeah, a very real fear. And when it comes to cyber attacks, then, is that a concern primarily for the Ukraine or are we expecting to see wider attacks across Europe, even the US again? So obviously, Ukraine is going to be the biggest target for Russia. But the reason that UK and US authorities have been warning about cyber attacks is because there's a clear risk for things to spill over into other countries. We saw in 2017 with the NotPetya malware attack, we think this was from Russia attacking Ukraine, but it was something that actually ended up affecting the global internet infrastructure. Lots of companies and organizations around the world were were hit by this. And actually, even just disruption in Ukraine can mean global disruption. One in five Fortune 500 companies rely on Ukraine for IT services. They're they're a massive IT outsourcer. Wow. Um, I had no idea. What can we do to defend against it? And, you know, can we preemptively do the cyber strikes or or would that be tantamount to a declaration of war? So it was really interesting this week we saw the UK Defence Minister Ben Wallace when talking about the the Russian aggression. He he made the point that the UK's new national cyber force has been established. He didn't say what that cyber force was going to do, but he then went on to say, I am a soldier and I was taught that the best part of defence is offence. So that does suggest that this, this national cyber force, which was set up, for offensive cyber capabilities rather than just offensive will be active during this conflict. But just as with the physical response, the West is probably going to be limited to stopping Russian cyber attacks rather than complete aggression. You know, we at the moment we have NATO troops are bordered in neighboring countries. They're not going into Ukraine. I think that would be a similar thing. The West is not going to be all-out attacks on Russian internet infrastructure. 
Thanks, Jacob. We'll post links to both those stories in our show notes, and I'm sure we'll be returning to the subject in future shows. Right now, though, uh, let's turn to COVID. So this week in England saw the lifting of the last of the legal coronavirus rules, including the requirement for people with COVID-19 to self-isolate, although I will say it is still advised and it's in the guidance. It's just not legally enforced. Yes, this is the so-called living with COVID plan announced by uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I was quite shocked by this, as we still have high infection rates. So I asked Christina Pagel about it, and she's a mathematician at University College London, and she's a member of Independent SAGE, which is a group that offers independent scientific advice to the government. Christina, thanks for joining us. Before we get on to the changes in restrictions that have just been announced, can you give us a quick update on where we are with infections and hospitalisations? We're at about one in 20 people infected up to about the middle of February. And it's come down a lot, but we're still nowhere near where we were pre-Omicron. So kind of so we're not out of this wave. And the other thing just to keep an eye on is that there is a new subvariant of Omicron called BA2, which is increasing and probably will become dominant in England this week. <laughs> and it is already dominant in Northern Ireland, where 8% of people are currently infected. So there is a potential for there to be a longer tail to this wave because of that variant. But hospitalizations are coming down, so that's good. And deaths are now coming down as yeah. well. So at the moment, that's on a good trajectory. Yeah. I mean, my next question was going to be after what Matt Hancock, the former UK health secretary, said in the Commons that Britain was the first country to be past the pandemic. But, you know, as you've just said, we, we've got one in 20 or thereabouts. There's a long tail on on this, even on this wave. What's going on? What, what, what well, does that statement I mean, mean? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a meaningless thing to say. You can't unilaterally declare yourself out of a pandemic. That's not how it works, right? I mean, yeah. firstly, they also said, I think, I can't remember whether it was Boris Johnson or someone else, was saying this week, you know, that they absolutely, you know, there will be a new variant and there will be a new surge. WHO says that. We all expect that. Now, what the hope is, is that that won't have devastating impacts on the NHS or deaths, but it might. You know, the nerve tag group, which advises the government, said, you know, that there's no particular reason to think that the next variant will be milder. It could easily be more severe. So you just can't declare yourself out. You can declare yourself in a better position, but that's about it. Yeah. And we haven't actually put in place that much to prevent a new surge or to make it less serious if it happens. So what was the advice from Independent Sage on uh, ahead of the government decision to go ahead with this, you know, living with COVID plan? I think our advice is always about, okay, well, how do you prevent a new surge? People kind of saying, well, everyone's going to get COVID at some point. You know, realistically, given where we are and given how infectious it is now, that may well be true. But are we going to live in a world where everyone gets it twice a year or you might be every few years or every 10 years, you know, and we have some control over that. So I think what we want is to put in place things like a really large and ambitious plan to improve ventilation. Another thing is to continue the vaccination program. We've still only got two thirds of the country with a booster, for instance. We're only just starting to vaccinate children where we've seen massive infections this term. Vaccinate the world. Actually, the, the new variants that we've seen so far have not emerged in highly vaccinated settings. So if we can, the more people we vaccinate, the safer we all are. Things like tackling inequality. I mean, they're not small things, but they're things as a society I think we should be doing. We've seen this really disproportionate impact in more deprived communities, both in the UK and, and elsewhere. And it's how do we create more resilient populations? 
And how do we put in the surveillance systems that means that we can track new variants, make sure that we respond when there's a new surge, and actually do things like potentially reintroduce mass testing or reintroduce isolation and contact tracing. So these are the kind of plans that you want to have, given that we've got a new disease. I'm just thinking about the signalling that we've been getting from the government. You know, now that we don't have to wear masks on public transport, people have got it into their heads, or have they, that this is over? We, you know, we've heard that from Matt Hancock. We, you overhear people saying, oh, it's, we're, we can all get back to normal now. Has the government messaging got to be clearer on where we are and what we need to carry on doing? I mean, I think it should be. I think the government messaging is quite deliberate and they're giving the message that they want to give, which is that the pandemic's over. I don't think it's true. And I think it's a problem. And one of the things that that annoys me most about the kind of back to normal, it's over thing, is that somehow people assume that means we're back to 2019, but we're not. And for instance, people constantly compare COVID to flu and say, oh, it's like flu now, it's fine. But even if it were, which it isn't, but even if it were like flu, adding a new disease, the same severity as flu to our population is a bad thing, right? Not only is it going to massively stress the NHS if you're effectively doubling the flu season every year, but you're also in a situation where you're just going to have a lot more illness and a lot more death. So we've we've materially worsened the public health of our population. So I would much rather be in a situation where they go, okay, how do we get back the kind of life that we want to live, which is what people, I think, mean when they say back to normal? How can we mix socially? How can we not worry about being sick? How can we do all these things in a way that minimizes the number of times we're going to get COVID over the next decades? That's what I kind of want to see, especially because we still have absolutely no idea what the long-term impacts of this disease are. And what we do know are quite worrying. You know, like just, just last week, we had two big studies coming out of the States showing increased risk of heart problems across all kinds of different heart areas of the year after COVID and also an increase in new mental health diagnoses the year after COVID. So, you know, we're seeing that there are these long-term impacts. There was a study in Nature saying, you know, that all pandemics have caused a pandemic of disability after the acute phase. We need to talk about it. That's what we need to do. We need to have a conversation about what does this mean and how do we live with it, not just declare that we're living with it. You know, this is the third SARS epidemic in, what, 15 years. We're due a flu one. And the fact that we're seeing more pressure on environments and more interaction between species and climate change are all going to just make this a more common event. I think this is the first pandemic that most people in the UK have lived through, but it definitely is not going to be the last one. And I think we have to start thinking as if we're in a new world. And and I think that's hard for people. Adam has reported on uh, the lifting of those legal restrictions this week, and we'll post a link to that story in our show notes. Now, if you've ever wanted to travel to space or explore the deep ocean, find out how life on Earth began, or understand how your mindset shapes your health, happiness and longevity, then New Scientist Live is for you. It's all happening on the 12th and 13th of March. Join us in person at Manchester Central or online from the comfort of your home for an amazing weekend packed with thought-provoking talks, groundbreaking discoveries, interactive experiences, hands-on activities, workshops and performances. (sighs) Go to newscientist.com slash live to find out more and to book your tickets. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right now we've got another life form of the week and it's Yay. orangutans. Yeah, hard to resist these. The must know news in the in the world of orangutans this yeah. week is that they can figure out how to use stone tools, but probably not really how to make them. Okay, so we know tool use is that one of those classic things that in the olden days was kept as a human only thing what made humans special and then it turned out loads of animals could do it right yeah and it, and really it is loads of animals um so the most famous perhaps are chimps they make various tools uh new caledonian crows make those cool little hooks out of sticks to solve problems but there are plenty of others uh some monkeys dolphins and so on but you can make a bit of a distinction within that of uh, the animals that will use an object as a tool and the animals that actually have the intellect to to make a new tool to solve a problem problem and that's a more select group okay and what group are we putting orangutans in then well so there was this interesting experiment involving orangutans at a zoo in norway and researchers found that if you hand the animals or offer the animals stone tools they can figure out how to use them to get at some fruit inside a sealed box However, if you hand the orangutans the materials for making these stone tools, they don't really get there on their own. So some of them did start making sharp stone flakes, which could in theory then be used to cut the rope that was sealing this box that had the fruit in. But the orangutans, even though they made those flakes, they didn't really make the connection that you could then use those to cut open the, the box. Right. And and so from that, we're saying, we're concluding, are we, that orangutans can't make tools to solve problems so i think it's a really interesting experiment but i don't think i don't really know if we can say that for sure so on the one hand there are only five or so orangutans so it's quite a small study but also if you think about it i'm not sure how fair it is to expect orangutans to suddenly grasp the idea of making stone tools they they live all their lives in the trees they don't really come into contact with stones and rocks right I mean, I wonder if you make a more natural experiment or do something that, you know, that match their natural environment. It might be they might be more of a chance of passing this test that we've set them. Yeah, I think that's a question you always have to ask with studies like these. And, and you know, are we holding orangutans up to a, a very human standard of intelligence here? We're a bit obsessed with our ancestors and which ones learned to create what type of stone tool and when. But just because that's what we think is really great doesn't mean that's the most pressing technology for orangutans. But in fact, I did find there was a study in 2018 that found that orangutans do um, use hook tools, you know, made out of twigs and things and are capable of making these themselves. So, yeah, perhaps if, if it was a bit more like their, their natural habitat, they, they might have had a, a better go at it. Yeah. And, you know, orangutans are, are less studied than the other great apes. So perhaps there is this snobbery about them being not as intellectually advanced as as chimps or as yeah. humans. But hopefully with more studies like this, we'll, we'll start to understand just what they're capable of. 
next up, we have a story on your favorite subject, Rowan, billionaires <laughs> spending money. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I have to say, you know, it's not my favorite subject, but I really love this one. It's a bit different. For once, it's not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. It's an Australian guy called Mike Cannon-Brooks. Yeah, and he is so fed up with Australia's lack of action on climate change that he's decided to take matters into his own hands and try and buy the country's largest electricity company so that he could then shut down all its coal-fired plants and replace them with renewable energy. And obviously, I love this idea. As as you say, I love thinking of ways to spend billionaires' money or that they can spend their money. So, so I spoke to our Australian reporter, Alice Klein, about this. Hi, Alice. Now, let's start with Australia's dirty secret, which is that it currently produces the highest carbon emissions per capita in the world from burning coal for electricity. That's more even than China. So why is that? Well, basically, Australia has become very, very rich from coal mining. So trying to wean our political leaders off coal has been very difficult. And in fact, they love it so much that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, once came to Parliament with a lump of coal and he's kind of brandished above his head and said, this is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It won't hurt you. Oh so yeah, that's what we're up against. It's like that time in the in the US Senate when the Jim Inhofe came in and brought a snowball into the Senate. You know, he's a climate denier and he brought a snowball in going, oh, there's no such thing as global warming. You know, oh, my <laughs> God, these people. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a good stunt. So who is uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks and what's he trying to do? So Mike Cannon-Brooks is the co-founder of an Australian software company called Atlassian, which I actually only heard of a few years ago when my friend, who's a, a very talented programmer, went to go work for him. And over the last few years, it's really exploded. And that means that Mike Cannon-Brooks has become a very wealthy man. He's actually yeah. the third, third richest person in Australia now um, at the age of 42. Mm. And it's estimated that his net worth is around $20 billion. Wow. Okay, that's a nice bit of money you could do some good things with. And he, this is the cool thing, isn't it? He's thinking of, of really radical ways to spend this money. Yeah, well, actually, over the last few years, um, as he's become more famous, he's become increasingly vocal about how Australia needs to transition away from coal. And not just for environmental reasons, but economic reasons too, because Australia's got a lot of potential in the renewable energy industry. Yeah, yeah. So he's been, you know, lobbying the government in various different ways, but it's kind of fallen on deaf ears. So I guess he must have thought, all right, well, if you can't beat them, you may as well buy them. And <laughs> I guess he's got that luxury. And on the weekend, he launched an $8 billion bid to try to buy Australia's largest electricity company, AGL. And his plan is to shut down its three massive coal-fired plants by 2030 and replace them with things like solar, wind and batteries. Right. And so how's that bid going? So the $8 billion bid was knocked back by the board of AGL because they said it was too low, but negotiations are still ongoing. So I reckon a deal could still be struck. Uh, let's hope so. So obviously he's a very successful software maker, but is he up to the job of taking over this massive infrastructure transition? I mean, this is a huge undertaking because AGL is currently Australia's single biggest greenhouse gas emitter and its annual emissions are more than all of Sweden's. Well, so this would be the largest decarbonisation project ever attempted anywhere. But one good thing, though, is that he's partnered with a giant Canadian asset management firm called Brookfield, which has a lot of money and a lot of experience in renewable energy investments. And the other thing is that Smart software is actually becoming increasingly critical to renewable energy delivery. So his software background may actually be a bonus. 
Right. Okay. And is this his first foray into renewable energy projects? He does have some experience because in 2019, he teamed up with Australia's second richest person, Andrew Forrest, who's um, more commonly known as Twiggy, uh, who made his billions through mining, but now he's become a bit of a green energy convert. And they funded this project called Sun Cable, which is building a gigantic solar farm in northern Australia that is designed to deliver electricity to Singapore through a submarine cable because Singapore doesn't have much space to build its own solar farms. Right. And then also in 2017, he convinced Elon Musk to build this massive battery in South Australia to store wind energy after making a bet with him on Twitter. <laughs> well, he, should get, he should get back on Twitter and get Elon to help with this transition away from coal now. <laughs> I know. Get um, them all together. It's seriously. So what's the Australian government's response been to um, his attempt, Mike Cannonbrook's attempt to do this, to shut down the coal industry effectively? Well, they seem pretty unimpressed by it. So our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was asked about it by our reporters on Monday. And he said he thought that coal plants should operate for as long as possible so that electricity prices don't rise. Um, specifically, yeah. he said we should sweat those assets for their life. <laughs> nice choice of words. I know. But... Actually, electricity prices should come down if this happens because renewable energy is now, of course, cheaper than coal yeah. power. So I think this just shows how out of touch the Australian government is. And I guess this is why we need billionaires swooping in and taking charge, which is not ideal. No, it's really not. But uh, at least it is something. Um, uh, and mm. that's why it's good if we can leverage this um, in any way. Are there any other examples of, of this happening, people buying up coal plants to shut them down? The only other example I've come across was a recently announced plan by the Asian Development Bank. They're planning to buy five to seven coal-fired plants in Southeast Asia and close them, um, like Mike Cannonbrooks is planning to do here, and replace them with renewable energy. But I think if Mike Cannonbrooks can pull off this thing in Australia, then hopefully it will inspire other similar takeovers. Thanks, Alice. And we've got a story on that in the magazine too. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I'll be nice and point out that Rowan has written a book all about how to spend lots of money to save the world. <laughs> I didn't even ask you to do that. <laughs> now, Jason, you've got a story about pain perception and some new discoveries that point to a new way for us to think about how we all feel or sense pain. I guess we should start with a basic question. How big of an issue is pain or, or chronic pain in the UK? Yeah, Penny. Uh, so, yeah, chronic pain, which is defined as lasting 12 weeks or more, affects between one third and a half of adults in the UK. It seems to mostly affect women. And, yeah, with the world's population getting older, the issue seems to, it'll, yeah, it'll only get worse as chronic pain is more common in older people. Do we have any way of stopping chronic pain? Do we understand how to, to disrupt it? Yeah, it's tricky. We have a lot of mouse models for how pain works, but when it comes to translating these studies into human drug targets, they seem to fail. Yeah, well, a mouse is not a person, right? Yeah, mice and humans are just different, and especially when it comes to pain perception, we don't seem to know what exactly the overlapping mechanisms are. Researchers at the University of Texas have actually developed a genetic map of the dorsal root ganglion in mice, humans, and macaques to try and figure out what pain pathways in these non-human animals may be shared with humans. Right, so can you unpack that for us a bit? You have to remind me what a dorsal root ganglion is, but also yeah. what's a pain pathway? Yeah, because I thought, I would have assumed that pain travels along any old nerve, but uh, that's not the case, is it? 
well, it's, yeah, as we'll get to later, it is a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, essentially, we know there are these specialized neurons for transmitting signals from damaged tissue. And the dorsal root ganglion is essentially where the main parts of these pain neurons cluster together in the spinal nerve. By looking at this ganglion, we can get a good sense of the neurons involved in chronic pain. So when they developed this map um, what, and looked across these three different species, what was it, um, mice, humans and macaque monkeys, what did they find? So the team found that mice seem to have specific neurons for different types of pain, such as heat or mechanical pain, whereas human pain neurons seem to be able to respond to all different types. Hopefully this knowledge will get us a better idea of what drugs to pursue in tackling chronic pain. Yeah, and there was a bit of a controversial finding as well, like a difference between male and female human pain neurons, right? Yeah, they did. So mice pain neurons don't seem to have that big a sex divide. But human pain neurons did show a major difference. One major example they pointed out was the protein CGRP was more active in neuron clusters in women than in men. That protein has been implicated in migraines, which affects women three times as much as men. It's really interesting to think of the neurons behaving differently in men and women and completely differently from mice in terms of sensing pain. It kind of shows just how little we know or how much more we have to discover. Um, but you also reported on another study this week that suggested that pain neurons aren't actually the only things that cause us to feel pain. Yeah, I found this fascinating. Researchers found that Schwann cells, which are these non-neuronal cells that typically wrap around neurons, may be just as important in pain and touch perception as any pain neuron. It's so interesting because these neurons have been so overlooked in this field for so long. It gives researchers a whole new avenue to pursue. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please tell all your friends about it and subscribe. Yes, subscribe, please, and tell everyone. And remember about that 20% subscription discount you can get at newscientist.com slash pod20. Thanks to our guests this week, Jacob Aaron, Jason Marugesu, Adam Vaughan and Alice Klein, and special guest Christina Pagel from UCL. We're back with more science news next week. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com